Let's jump into this. We got a lot to go through today. You guys have well known by now that I'm never short-winded or run out of things to talk about. So let's jump right into 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are on the tail end of this series. When I say tail end, I'm not giving you an end date because that has never panned out for me in the past. But we are getting closer to landing the plane. We have focused in this all of last year as we were gone through this is what has God given us to equip us and the truth is is it starts with and really one thing only it's the entirety of this this is what God has given us to equip us from this we know what God has given us spiritually physically all of the above but this is where it starts this is the foundation understanding what this is and what it is and it's so crucial I remember years ago, I was sitting down with a college student, and this guy, he was on the fence of, what do you do with the Bible? Because there's parts in there that doesn't make sense. Fair enough. There's weird stuff in the Bible. We're learning about some of those on Wednesday night. If you've been there, bring your tinfoil hat. It's weird. There's just no way around it. There's all sorts of stuff in there. And we just come through the Christmas season, right? The whole virgin birth narrative. We wouldn't believe it, except it's in here. Does that make it true? Do the, because this is completed and a collection of writings in any way, does that make those collections of writings true? Not necessarily, because the proof is found in itself. So when you understand what this Bible is and what it isn't, it will begin to come alive to you in a, a, a more profound way. It's a collection of 66 individual books written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year span on three different continents, most of which never met one another. And yet, inside of it, it is completely concise. The precision is unparalleled of any writing in mankind's history. And with this college student, I was sitting there talking to him because what he had done his entire life is he had grown up in a church where they read the Bible. And they would go into these Bible studies, and here's how they would look. They'd sit around and read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And they would look at Him and say, Jimmy, what does that verse mean to you? And he'd be like, well, that means that God loves me. Oh, that's good, Jimmy. Sarah, what does that verse mean to you? She's like, well, His mercy, that we believe in Him, His mercy poured out on and And... We're all sitting here like we've all been in these types of Bible studies. Okay, I'm using this verse. And I'm sitting there and I looked at him and I said, I don't give two craps what you think it means. I care what it means. Your opinion is completely irrelevant. And he looked at me, he's like, what do you mean by that? And I said, your opinion on what this means through the lenses that you're reading it are irrelevant. What did it mean to the guy that wrote it? What did it mean to the people that it was written to? That's what matters. And he's like, I never thought about it that way. I said, that's the problem. It'd be no different if your wife or husband writes you a letter. And I don't know you, but I find this letter. And it says, Dear Pookie. And they reference you as Pookie multiple times in there. First of all, we need to discuss your relationship. But secondly, if I didn't know who you were, but I found this letter, but I knew of this person that it referenced, what would I assume that your name is? Pookie. Would I be correct? I sure hope not. <laughs> but that's the same thing. We approach Scripture in that same thing. And here's the problem, is that everything that God has given us is found in this, but we don't take it as truth. 
We take it as like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. We mentally assent to the words that are there, but we have not accepted the fact that what God has said has come to pass, will come to pass, and every promise is true. You guys following me? Because here's the thing. When we look at Hebrews 10 to 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is that hope? That ultimate hope is in that Jesus is going to return at some point. And when he does, he's going to pull the church out, then we're going to spend eternity with him. What evidence do you have that proves that true? What in your life have you experienced that has proven that true? Nothing. We're holding on to hope for a future event based on the fulfillment of past promises. Because every one of his promises has been proven true. You guys following me? The problem we have today is we have created a God in an image that fits our narrative that we like, that feels good, smells good, sounds good, all of these things. And we've never stopped to ask the question, is that really the character of God? Because I've had numerous, as you guys know, I love apologetics. I've had numerous discussions with people who are agnostic or atheist. Atheist means they don't believe in any sort of a God, which is not actually correct, but let's just go with that. Agnostic just means I don't know. So I don't know, which is kind of the ultimate cop-out. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, you may not know, but if what I say is true, don't you think you'd want to know? Because if I'm wrong, it's fine, but wouldn't you want to know? There are pretty severe consequences if I'm right. And so we create this God, and we're like, okay, this is God. And when I sit there and I've talked to these people who don't believe in the same God that we do, and they're sitting there describing the character and nature of God, and they're saying this thing or this attribute, and I look at them and it's like, that's interesting, because I don't believe in that God either. Because we have applied a narrative based off experience or based off things we have read or heard to the character of God. The problem is God has laid out His character in its entirety in this. How do we know that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son? That whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life? Because He said so. Right? It's that simple. And so it's based off of these beliefs, these previously held beliefs or traditions or whatnot, that we've, we have looked at this in its entirety and said, oh, this is what God does. Look at this photo. This is what we've gone through the last couple of weeks. This whole thing is primarily nonsense, as you found out the last couple of weeks. There is very little factual about this, because this isn't how it worked. But why do we believe this? Why do we set these things up in our homes? Because it's got to be true, right? Where do we get these ideas? Traditions, songs, writings, whatever. We never stop to ask, okay, we've got three kings there. Were they kings? No, but the song says they are. How many were there? Were there three? No, but the song says there was. We never stopped to ask the question, how did a bunch of Persians know to look in the first place? What were they looking for and who told them to look? Why weren't the Jews looking? But the Persians were? That doesn't make any sense. They had to travel for 40 days to get there. Oh, well, they showed up right after he was born. No, they didn't. Oh, but Mary was getting ready to pop, scrambling around, couldn't find a room in a hotel because they were all booked. No, they weren't. I mean, all of this stuff that we've gone through, if you don't believe me, go back and listen to it online, and we'll get there eventually, right? We've had a little technical difficulties with our recording, but we're getting there. The thing is, is these traditions have shaped our view of the Christmas story. But I would say, and I venture to guess, and the few of you that have told me this, as we get down to what really happened, it's like, oh my goodness, that's way more powerful than that image. Because this image is haphazard. It just kind of happened. But you look at the precision, how 800 years before Jesus was born, Daniel was given a prophecy. He was in charge of the wise men of Persia. 
and would have taught them all of this that they would know where to look. Like, that's incredible. God moving these pieces around. And at the moment of time, when it was time for Jesus to be born, just like he had said, it was through a virgin from Bethlehem. All the powerful stuff that was in that story. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. So as we go forward to this, we're focused on this. Does God keep his promises? And what are those promises? And the thing that would separate a charismatic church, and one such as us, versus a non-charismatic church, is the way that we apply the truth of Scripture. Because we take it like this. If God said it, then we just simply are going to believe it. And if God has told us something we should be doing, then we're going to do that very thing. So when it says to go into all the world and preach the gospel, most churches say, yes, that's what we have to do. How you do it, there might be a little bit of debate. But the fact that you should do it, no problem. But here's where it comes down. Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Well, only if it's God's will. Or, well, God doesn't do that anymore. That was back then. That no longer applies to us and so on and so forth. There are all these parts to it that we cannot just take for granted. And what we believe is like, you know what? God said it. And we're looking at the ideas God kept His Word and ultimately in the area of healing. And that's where we're getting, but we're laying the foundation. So today, I want to teach you something that some of you have heard before. So some of this will be a reiteration for you, but not everybody has heard this. And I want to make sure you get it. Because when Messiah came, what signs were they to be looking for? Born of a virgin, in Bethlehem. Like there were all these things, right? Look for him. When He appeared to the shepherds, you will find a babe lying in a manger, Wrapped in swaddling cloths, all of that stuff. He told the shepherds what to look for. There was an expectation for them to recognize the signs that Messiah had come. Now, with that, now we're moving past the birth of Messiah. Now we're going to look at grown-up Messiah. And what did they think that Messiah would do? Well, what I'm going to show you today, that there were four miracles that they believed that the Messiah himself could perform. And only the Messiah. It would take God because there were physical conditions in mankind that only could be corrected by God himself. So let me give these to you and then we'll drill down into them. The first one was the cleansing of a leper. The second one was the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit, which means they could not hear or speak. One stupid. The third is the healing of a birth defect. And the fourth is the raising of the dead after the third day. Now I'll explain all these in a minute. But the Pharisees believed that only Messiah himself could perform these miracles. That miracles happened. There were examples of healing throughout Scripture. Example of, uh, there were demons that were cast out. There were uh, Jewish exorcists and they had a formula, and I'll get into that in a minute. There were all these things. They also believed that the dead could be raised. But after the third day, he couldn't because the spirit of the man left him. So there are all these things that they believe. And all of this had to be dealt with that the Pharisees believed that when Messiah showed up, he would perform these four miracles. Why the Pharisees? Why do they matter? They were in charge at that point in time of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Jewish Supreme Court. So you had the uh, Herodians, you had Essenes, you had a bunch of these different groups, the Sadducees being the primary one. But at that point in time, the Pharisees were more in charge. And later on, with the times of the apostles, you see the uh, Sadducees come into play. They take over power. So what happens when one of these miracles were to be performed? Well, it would be reported to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees' job was to send somebody to inspect. You see, if what you said is true has happened. So if somebody is claiming that they are healing the blind, somebody born blind, the Pharisees' job was to go and make sure that that very thing was happening. And they would investigate, and they would look into it, and they would ask questions. 
So if you've ever wondered why the Pharisees were hanging around Jesus so much, now you know why. Because it was their responsibility to make sure that these things were happening. Because you may or may not know this, but Jesus was not the first Messiah figure to appear in Jerusalem. And he wasn't the last one either. They're still waiting. In fact, rabbis today think that he is on the earth now, the Messiah. They're still waiting today. So there were things about this, about the fallen nature of man, that things were either put on directly by God or as a result of demonic influence or a result of sin that only God himself can take care of. Now, with that, how big a deal was it that all these signs came into play that they should recognize their Messiah when he came? It's a very big deal. Because remember what we read last week in Luke 19, as he rode in fulfilling that kingship, claiming to be king, and we talked about the time frame from Daniel when he prophesied to the time that Jesus rode in on the colt, being exactly what he said it would be. In Luke 19, verse 41, as he's writing in, it says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, talking about Jerusalem. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace... But now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now this is huge. Think about what is going on. This is what we call Palm Sunday. Jesus riding into Jerusalem. People are declaring him Messiah. They're laying down their clothes. They're laying down these palm branches as he rides in, declaring he is the king, fulfilling that prophecy. And yet, here he gives a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. For what reason? Because they didn't recognize him. But wait a minute. There are people that did recognize him. So how does that work? It is because Israel was governed by an entity, thus the Pharisees at this point, and they had to declare Messiah. And they didn't do it. They refused to. Now, we'll drill into this a little bit more. So, one of the powerful things about this very verse is we know when this was fulfilled. It was 70 AD. It happened when the Romans came in and it completely destroyed Jerusalem. Now, this also lets us know that the book of Luke and the book of Acts and almost every New Testament writing took place, the writing did, prior to 70 AD. Why do we know that? Because if you're trying to prove that Jesus wasn't simply a man, but he was somebody anointed by God, would you not write in the fulfillment of a prophecy that he gave prior to his death? Absolutely you would. You're trying to make a case. That tells me that it likely hadn't happened when the writings were. So they predated that. So that's just a little nugget for information. I'm going to charge you extra for that one. That one's on me. So let's begin to dig into this. Leprosy, what is it? It's gross. It's still around today, although not, not as pertinent. It was believed that leprosy was inflicted by God himself. He put it on the individual. They called it the finger of God. There are three incidents of leprosy in the Old Testament inflicting the Israelites. The first one was the, there was a reluctant prophet, Moses, when he stuck his hand into his cloak and brought it out. Leprosy on it was a demonstration of God's power. Who removed it? God did, right? He was causing both. Then you've got Miriam, who was afflicted with leprosy because she was being punished for speaking out against Moses, God's anointed man. And what happened? It was put on her. God also ultimately removes it. So you can kind of see where they're getting this. The last one is King Uzziah. As he enters the holy place, he wasn't supposed to go in there, and he burns incense on the altar, wasn't supposed to do that. He was a king, not a priest. 
And so he was inflicted with leprosy by God, and he dies for it because he went against God's temple and the ordinance that God had laid out. There's also an incident involving Naaman, who was a Gentile, who had leprosy. It was recorded in the Tanakh, but God cleansed him through the instruction given by Elisha. So there's some instances, there's only three specific, about God putting it on somebody, and then we see God removing it. So where did they get these ideas? They got it from this very thing. Who put the leprosy on them? God did. Thus, it is by matter of fact that we can say, okay, well, God puts leprosy on people. Now let's look at 2 Kings chapter 5. We're talking about Naaman. It says, now Naaman, verse 1, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and he had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. So she knows that the man of God is capable of doing this. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. The king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. That's a lot of money, y'all, in case you didn't know. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Now, why does he react that way? When they tear their clothes, that is a sign of their grieving something. They think that war is getting ready to start. You're asking something of me I can't physically do. You're looking for a reason to invade. That's what he's thinking. So, verse 8, so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went to his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Now look what happened. Naaman had a preconceived idea of how this was going to go down. And because it didn't go down the way that he thought it should, he's ticked off. Elijah told him the way to go and be clean and be healed of this, but he didn't like it because he'd had this preconceived idea of how this should happen. Does that sound like anything we've been talking about? Oh, you better believe it does. So, verse 12, are not the Abana and the Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more when he says to you, wash and be clean? Now look at that. Think about how we approach God. Well, if they say you got to do this, if you give this money and you do this task, then you'll be right. If you go and do it this way, then God will hear you. But he's like, he just wants you to go. Just go. Like, what's the big deal? This is simple. Just go do it. Humor him, if you will. So he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So do you think he went down there in faith? Or was he appeasing he was appeasing. Oh, yeah, whatever. I'll just go just to shut you up. 
And he went, look at verse 15, and he returned to the man of God. He and all his aides and came and stood before him. And he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. There is, I mean, this is such a powerful story, but it fits exactly what we're talking about. But look what leprosy is. The belief was that leprosy was given by God. There is no biblical record of an Israelite ever having been cleansed of leprosy. Like that they just got it, you know, wasn't involved in a judgment or anything like that. They would get it, they had these camps, and what would happen is they were to live in shame, they were condemned by God, live in shame outside the camp of Israel. Look at this in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn, and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean all the days he has the sore. He shall be unclean. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, this is a big deal because their dwelling outside of the camp essentially set these people up alone by themselves. These were what we would call sinners. But remember, clean and unclean isn't necessarily tied into sin and not sin. Don't conflate those two things because we're talking about two different things here. But the bottom line is this, is when they got it, they would go into these camps, and if anybody would begin to approach them, what do they have to do? They'd have to stand up and yell, unclean, unclean, because what happens if somebody comes near him? They now become unclean. Whether they get leprosy or not, according to the Levitical law, now they have to go and ceremonially cleanse and so on and so forth. There's all these things that go on. And so imagine, if you will, how much fun that would be. They believed that this was the finger of God. He would put this on people as a result of his will and their sin. But look in chapter, or Mark chapter 1, because we're going to watch this play out. Mark chapter 1, verse 40 says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this is more powerful than we give it credit. I just told you what they're supposed to do. You know what they're not supposed to do? Go to anybody. And he did. He came out of the camp and he sought out Jesus. And what did he say? If you are willing, you can make me clean. How did he know that? You ever ask that question? You notice he didn't say healed. He says, you can make me clean. There is a distinction there. The healing and the cleanliness do work hand in hand. But how did he know? What was he looking for? Well, look at verse 41. Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and he touched him. Jesus was not supposed to do that. What happens when you touch him? You become unclean. And said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him, and watch this, and sent him away at once, and said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There, had to, there was like eight days of sacrifice and things that the priest had to do. I mean, it was a whole thing. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Now, here's the question. Why did Jesus tell him to say nothing? You ever thought about that? Was he just not wanting the attention? Or could it be that he knew, Jesus knowing this, that this is one of the miracles of Messiah? By performing this miracle, this is a clue that Jesus is Messiah. And because of that, he's going to start draw attention unwantedly from the Pharisees. Did the Pharisees make Jesus' life easier or harder? Not easier. Okay? So you can begin to see these things underlined behind the text. 
and the culture of what was going on here. There were a lot of things that happened in this moment. So that's number one. The second one is the deaf and dumb spirit. Okay? What would happen? There was exorcism that took place. Jews practices, have practices, continue to practice this. But there was a formula that they followed. There were three steps. Okay? Here's the good news. Three-step plan to exorcise the demons. Isn't that nice? First thing they would do when they come upon a person who was demon-possessed, they would ask the demon his name. The second thing, when the demon would reply using the voice of the possessed individual most times, it wasn't like you see them, blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying that can't happen, but, you know, whatever. And then the third thing that they would do is they would cast the demon out by the name, but they could not do it without the name because who are you addressing? What are you addressing? We actually see Jesus follow the formula in Mark chapter 5. Watch what happens. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Then they said, uh, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately uh, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, here's the question. How do they know who he was? I mean, the Gadarenes is not Jerusalem. He's going up to a different area. This is, is less Jew country, a little more Gentile country. But, but there's still a lot of Jews that are in this area. And how did this guy recognize him? And then how did he know he was the Son of the Most High God? This dude's been living in tombs. Because there's a spiritual thing that's going on here. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out to the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place in the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, if you're coming on Wednesday nights, you're hearing a little bit about these type of activities and where this stuff comes from. But the bottom line is, is that he took care of them. And what did he do? He asked for the name. Verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. It's interesting it puts it that way. It makes you wonder with all the mental illness that's going out there, is this more spiritual than it is physical? I'm not going to get sidetracked by that today. Those who saw it told him how it happened to them who had been demon possessed and about the swine, and they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Would you get out of here? It's a lot easier to deal with that guy than what it is you're doing. And when he got in the boat, he, had, uh, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he's had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim into Capitalists all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Now, we see him follow the formula. What did he do? He got the name, cast them out, the man was set free. That's the formula. It's really that simple. That was the formula they followed. Did he do that every time? No, he did not. Did he need to do that at all? No, he did not, which is interesting that he chose to do at that time. Because look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. What do you do on the Sabbath? Nothing, right? You do nothing. I've, I've told the story before, but if you go over to Israel on the Sabbath and you get on the elevator, it stops on every floor because pushing a button is work. So 
places that are bigger have two elevators. They have a Jewish elevator and a Gentile elevator. And when a Gentile walks onto their elevator, a bunch of Jews jump in there and say, hey, will you push 412? Because they can't do it. So, on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, so there they are, they're around. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. I'm going to pause for a minute. Just make sure we're all on the same page. Understand. He is not going against the law. He didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. But what had happened at the time of Ezra when they came back from uh, their vanquish is that they come back and they created what they call fence laws. And so basically, if this is what God had commanded, they're going to create a fence to make it more strict. That way you have to jump over that to really break the last one because that's what got them into the trouble in the first place. And so that is what's going on here. Jesus is correcting them. Your traditions has said this. But that's not what God has said. Verse 9. Now when he departed from them, he went into their synagogue. Now what is a synagogue? Again, I'm sorry to reiterate this, but I want to make sure everybody understands. To have a synagogue in a city, you had to have 10 Jewish men. It was started again at the time of Ezra because they were dispersed. So they created pockets, what we call church, but they created pockets where you could go to worship without having to go clear to Jerusalem and to the temple. So he's at their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what, a man, what man is there among you as one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? There it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And when he said to them, stretch out your hand, he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he, immediately, he withdrew from them, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. How many? All of them. And he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Now, stop for a minute. Why is he wanting them to not make it known? He's not revealing himself yet. He is not sitting and declaring, yeah, guys, I'm in. He had never once said that. It was the people that kept saying that. The Pharisees refused to see it. They're right there. They watch this. Look at verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. And that blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Why did they make that statement? could not speak, could not get the name. Therefore, only Messiah could perform that. And of course, the Pharisees and their nobleness and their wisdom said, this has got to be the guy, didn't he? Look at verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, he said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. That's their reaction. Why? They don't like him. So it doesn't matter if it's true or not. I don't like him, therefore he is not. Sounds like our culture today, doesn't it? You see, the Jews could not cast out a deaf spirit. They couldn't cast out a dumb spirit because you have to be able to hear the request. You have to be able to say the name. And when Messiah came, he demonstrated 
his lordship by casting these things out. You guys see this so far? That's two of the four. Now let's look at number three. Birth defects. Birth defects were believed to be a punishment of God for either the sins of the child or somewhere in his ancestral line. You know what we call those today? Generational curses. Oh, you know, you've got this, this generational curse and so on and so forth. Look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. It says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There you have it. Whatever great-great-great-great-grandpa did is affecting you today. You probably deserve reparations from your great-great-great-great-grandfather. You didn't even know it, did you? Now, I'm not going to get into the generational curse idea, although there's umpteen biblical verses that talk about the nonsense behind that. But the bottom line here is they believe that if a child was born with any sort of birth defect, be it blind, be it deaf, be it lame, whatever the case may be, that God had done this and was punishing either the child for their sins, the parents for their sins, or somebody along the line. This was God's punishment on them. Look at Exodus 4, verse 10. And Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who make the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. There you have it again. Just a reiteration, right? So God has done this. Now, When you keep this stuff in mind, when you understand the mindset of what is going on here, it will begin to make the New Testament verses make a lot more sense. And we're going to go to John chapter 9, because there are clues inside of here that we often miss out on, but I want you to catch it today. John chapter 9, verse 1. I know I'm reading a lot, but I want to make sure we get all of this. John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Okay, perfect example. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There you have the mindset, right? Do we still contain this mindset today? Pockets of people do, right? So it's a fair question. We now understand the context of which they are asking this question. Verse 3, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Okay, stop. So is the result of this the fact that his parents sinned or this man had sinned? No, Jesus just told us that, right? So why do we build a doctrine upon saying, well, that might be what it is? Because we're idiots, that's why. We don't believe what Scripture says. So, verse 4. Uh, oh, excuse me, let me finish that. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. What works of God? We're talking about these messianic miracles. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and he said to them, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sin. So he went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. Man is healed. Jesus did it. Kind of weird way. He hacked a loogie, made some mud, put it on his face. Again, don't want to go into that today, but the bottom line is this. A man born blind was healed. So what should be the reaction? If that happened in this room, somebody that you knew was born blind and we pray for them and they instantly see, I think we'd be a little joyous. I think we'd be a little excited. In fact, I think there'd be a lot of people around that would be talking about that, wouldn't they? They would all be saying good things, wouldn't they? Probably not. Well, was he really born blind? 
Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, yeah, it's him, or he's like him. But he said, it's me. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes open? And they answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Why did they do that? Because a miracle that only God could perform had been accomplished. So as you can imagine, the Pharisees are excited about this. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So you know where this is going. The Pharisees also asked him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Okay, now understand their mindset. We caught the mindset of the disciples. Now let's look at their mindset. The Sabbath says we do no work, nothing whatsoever. We don't walk too far. We don't pick grain. We don't, do, we don't push button on elevators. So therefore, if this man is claiming to be from God, but he broke the Sabbath, he can't be from God. Fair? You understand the mindset. Whether they're right or wrong, that is the mindset. Others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? A very fair counterpoint. And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who received his sight. Maybe he's making this up. Let's talk to mom and dad. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we don't know. And who opened his eyes, we don't know. But he's of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Now imagine what a big deal this was. Because in order to worship God, you had to come to God in a certain way. If you are put out of the synagogue, how can you worship God? You cannot. At least by the mindset. So this is a big deal. So they're throwing the ball back at their son. Throwing him under the bus a little bit. Whoa, listen, we know he was born blind. We don't know how he saw. We don't know what's going on. Ask him. He's a grown man. Don't ask me. Leave me out. Why? Because what had happened, if anybody confessed he was Christ, they'd get thrown out. Now, does that sound like a rational explanation and a rational response to seeing somebody who claims to be Messiah? No. If you're objectively looking at this and you are one that must declare Messiah, shouldn't you be objectively looking at it? Of course you should, but you don't. Same today. We don't look at it objectively. We look at what we, believe, what we already believe. So verse 23 says, Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory, because we know this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know. I was blind, and now I see. And they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this next line. Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, Why? This is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from. Yet, 
He has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Why do they think that only Messiah can do it? It's never been done before. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's educating the educators. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? Again, going back to that mindset. You guys see that now? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, well, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who uh, see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. You guys see how this story unfolds in a whole different light? These were not random questions figuring this out. It is the fact that what Jesus had done This is just another one of these miracles that Jesus had performed that they were expecting that Messiah would only do. And the problem is, he can't be Messiah because that's not who we think it is. Let's look at the last one. Raising the dead after the third day. Now, this one's important because they believed that the spirit, when a man dies, the spirit of that man stayed with the body up until day three. At day four, the body had decomposed to the point that the spirit would leave and there was no bringing them back. This is what the way that they acted. So once that happened, you were done. But when Messiah comes, he will be able to bring somebody back after the fourth day. Now, we're going to read out of John chapter 11, and you're going to see stuff in here you've never seen before, so watch carefully. Starting in verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And Jesus heard that. He said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's a bold claim, isn't it? Well, it's what's coming next that matters. He's telegraphing here. Jesus loved Martha and her sister. And Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. Now that makes zero sense. Zero. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. He finds out he's sick. Jesus knows he holds the cure. So his response is, let's hang out for a couple more days. That doesn't make any sense. Let's go on. Verse 7. Then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? And he answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not on him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I go that I may wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said plainly to them, Lazarus is dead, 
And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now, that's a weird statement again. Why is he glad he wasn't there? Well, he's getting ready to do something that nobody else could do. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for how many days? Four. Not three, four. Why did Jesus wait? Get into the fourth day. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. But Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. And Mary was sitting at the house, but Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that a true statement? Yes, it is. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Pause. Did the Jews have a belief that ultimately when God comes at the last days, the dead in Christ will rise again, or the dead in Yahweh, I should say? Yes. So the idea of the resurrection was an old one. Again, we're seeing the preconceived beliefs that they had. So... Verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. This is big. Declares him Messiah. The Son of God who has come into the world. And when he had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out and followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both, they believed that Jesus could heal him. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he says, where have you laid him? And he said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Why? He loved these people. He sees they're hurting. He's moved with compassion for them. And the Jews said, how, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? What are they talking about? The miracles that Jesus had performed. Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against him. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been dead for four days. So we see it twice making an emphasis that John is emphasizing the four-day aspect. But look at her response. Lord, I know you can do this, but we don't want to open that up. We're past the point of no return. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. You know, what does he mean by that? Just raising somebody from the dead? No, they believe that could happen anyway. It's day four, that they may believe that he is the Son of God. Now when he said, had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave's clothes, and his, uh, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, this is an incredible thing. This is an undeniable messianic miracle. So you would think 
that everybody is excited. The Pharisees should be jumping with joy. The long-awaited Messiah has finally come. It's come in our lifetime. And now He is going to set up His throne in Jerusalem. We're no longer going to be under Roman rule. We're no longer going to be under the rule of anybody because now the King of Kings is here. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in Him. What does it take to become right with God? Believe in Him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Why? Had to be reported. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. What signs are they talking about? The ones I'm telling you. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Are they concerned with truth? No, they're not. They're concerned with power and freedom. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Why? This isn't who we want. He's done everything that he's supposed to do. He has been recognized as the Messiah by many, but he's not who we think he should be. He's not doing things our way. You guys see how powerful this is. Now look what God had done orchestrating the birth of Messiah. Even having Persians come in that were trained for 800 years by Daniel, by the writings of Daniel, and they had copies of the Torah, to look for the star to recognize the king of the Jews. So that sign was there, and now we have this sign. What was the expectation of Messiah? Did it come from Scripture, or did it come from tradition? It was tradition. And the tradition is what led to that Luke 19 judgment. Because you have not recognized me and the signs of my coming, your city will be destroyed. I don't want to be that person. And I don't think anybody in this room wants to be that person. We can't allow our tradition to overrule what is clear in Scripture. All the signs are there. Everything is there. Do you guys see how this is being orchestrated? What is the expectation of Messiah when He came? They weren't expecting Him to die. They are expecting Him to reign. But Scripture clearly stated that He would die. What was the result of that death, that sacrificial cleansing? That's what we got to begin to look at. Because when Messiah was on the earth, there were expectations of him. And he met those even if they were holding on to other ones. But what about now? What about going forward? What does Scripture clearly say about people in covenant with God? And I'm ultimately talking about healing. What is our expectation there? Is it a biblical one? Is it one based off how we grew up? Is it one based off of our experiences? If it's not from Scripture, it may be wrong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, Lord, and we 